The following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. Well, good morning. Like Chris said, my name is Eric Shelley. Um, I'm honored to be here this morning, honored to be able to bring God's word to you this morning. Hello to you, those of you streaming online. Um, we're glad you're joining us from wherever you're watching from today. Um, grab your Bibles if you brought them. Uh, we're going to be in the book of Matthew today. If you didn't bring a Bible, there's one underneath every, every seat. Um, or feel free to bring your own Bible. Uh, Bible, bring it up in your, in your Bible app or tablet. Um, if you're streaming, you can just click on the Bible icon that should take you there. Um, but we're going to be in Matthew, as Chris mentioned. And here at Fathom, we've slowly been working our way through the book of Matthew. And by slowly, I mean over the past seven years. Um, I think it was our first, first year we, we did Sermon on the Mount, um, a Sermon on the Mount series. We've preached Advent out of Matthew several times. Um, last summer, we did a series covering chapters 8 through 12 of Matthew. We just finished going through some of the, the Easter and, and Palm Sunday texts out of Matthew. Um, but now this summer, we're returning to Matthew again, and we're going to be in Matthew throughout the summer through September. And as we start this book, I just wanted to give kind of a brief review of the book of Matthew. You know, it's, it's always helpful to have some context as we read our Bibles, as we study our Bibles. It's helpful to know who, who's doing the writing, who they're writing to, um, and, and kind of why. It just kind of helps frame what, we're, what we read. And so the Gospel of Matthew was written by a guy named... Both are, both are correct. If you said Paul... Um, we would have, I'd have some more concerns. But yeah, Matthew is a writer of Matthew. He was also called Levi. He was a Jewish tax collector before Jesus called him to be a disciple. So he collected taxes from the Jews for the Romans. And he was not well liked because of this. But Matthew gets called by Jesus. He leaves this, this lucrative career with the Roman IRS to become a disciple of Jesus. He, he became an apostle, which means that he lived and walked alongside of Jesus. And so he's writing about, about his experience as an apostle, as a disciple of Christ. And he's writing about what he saw. And he's writing his gospel account primarily to a Jewish audience. Um, and this is, important into, this is important to our understanding of, of Matthew and, and what he writes. Everything he writes is, in, is a, in a way that a Jew living in that time would, would understand. So he may be referencing Old Testament scripture or Old Testament prophecy. He may be, may, may be referencing Jewish customs. Um, but he's writing in a way that would be relevant to Jewish understanding. He's trying to convince a Jewish reader about who Jesus is. And his, his writing differs from some of the other gospel writers in that his accounts aren't always in chronological order, and they're not, not always in the detail of some of the other writers. Um, Matthew, Matthew kind of writes uh, in, to, to present ideas or, um, or themes. So, so his accounts are, are some, some are more concise, and, and they're often a part of a larger idea. So as we work our way through Matthew's gospel this summer, keep these things in mind. Um, keep it in mind that he's writing to a Jewish audience, and he's, he's trying to give an account to a Jewish audience that Jesus is the promised Messiah. So that was a real kind of brief introduction or, or reintroduction. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, I, I just thought it would be helpful as we, as we get started. So as we get started today, how we experience something matters. Our experience something is important, right? It, it kind of shapes the way that we view that thing in the future and, and the way that we view our involvement with it. Now, after graduating college, I moved out to Colorado, and for, for several years, um, 
my college buddies, several years after I moved out here, some of my college buddies, we would all plan a ski trip together. So they would all fly out here. We would, we would plan a ski trip. Again, this was right after college, post-college. None of us, had, none of us were married and had, had kids yet. Uh, we typically do this around March when the weather was a little bit, a little bit nicer. And we typically do it during the, the March Madness, the NCAA tournament. Um, and so we would ski, and then we'd go watch basketball games together. And on one trip, after a day of skiing, we decided that rather than going out to eat that night, we were going to order some pizzas and just just kind of stay at the condo and watch basketball. And so we called Domino's and we ordered some pizzas. And this is like six or seven dudes uh, in our early 20s, after hungry after a full day of skiing Vail. And so I don't remember how many pizzas we ordered, but it was probably a pretty, pretty solid order, you know, pretty, a pretty good order of, of pizzas. And so we, we ordered the pizza. They gave us an approximate delivery time. And so we just kind of went about our afternoon, you know, getting, getting cleaned up, watching basketball, whatever we were doing. And the delivery time comes and goes. And now we're in the mountains, so, you know, mountain, they're always running on mountain time, so things are a little bit slower, so we gave them a little bit, a little bit of grace, um, but we probably waited 20 or 25 minutes after the estimated delivery time, and then we're finally kind of like, all right, let's, let's call them. So one of my buddies calls up Domino's and asks about our order, and their response was basically, oh yeah, we're, we're too busy tonight, and you're too far away, we're not coming. So, so... We were, we were livid. We were angry. We were hungry. We were hangry. Um, I mean, you know, like, I get it. If, it's, if you're too busy, it's too far away, and you don't want to do it, that, that's fine. Just tell us when we place the order. Don't, uh, don't no-show. Don't ghost us. Um, so we were all angry at, at Domino's. I don't remember where, what we ended up doing for food that night. We, we figured something out, obviously. But, but what I do remember is that we all decided right then and right there that we were boycotting Domino's. For life, we, we agreed that we weren't going to give Domino's our business anymore. They, they'd lost it. The Vail Valley Domino's franchise ruined it for every other Domino's in, in the country. This is about 20 years ago. Um, I still haven't purposefully purchased pizza from, from Domino's. Um, I, I may have begrudgingly eaten it on occasion, but when I can help it, I'm ordering Papa John's or Blackjack or even Pizza Hut. My wife, Ann, makes fun of me all the time because of this, of this dumb boycott, but, but my boycott of Domino's pizza continues. So the reason I'm telling this is, don't cross me. I, I, can, hold, I can hold a grudge. <laughs> now, the, the reason I'm telling this story is because how we experience things matter. How we interact with something today determines our relationship with it in the future. How we experience things is important. The lousy experience my buddies and I had with that Vale Domino's franchise determined our relationship with Domino's Pizza for the next 20 years. We project our experiences, both the good and the bad ones, onto our future experiences. So maybe you know someone that was kind of like me that maybe they got sick at a restaurant and so they won't eat there again. Or maybe you know someone who drank too much rum in college and now they can't even stand the smell of it. Or maybe someone had a really good uh, shopping experience at a certain store and now they're fiercely loyal to that store or that brand. This plays out in, in lots of different ways. How we experience things matters. So in today's passage in Matthew 13, it's about a homecoming. It's about Jesus' return to his hometown of Nazareth. But more importantly, today's passage is about the experience and the interaction that the people of Nazareth have with Jesus during his homecoming. And I think there are some things that we can take from the people of Nazareth's experience with Jesus and apply to our own experience with him today. Because there's, there's many different ways that people experience Jesus. 
And today's passage touches on several of them. Back in the 1960s, guitar legend Jimi Hendrix uh, formed a band called the Jimi Hendrix Experience. And the band had kind of this unique and diverse style, a lot of different influences. And so people who listened to Jimi's music would hear it and experience it in many different ways. And so I'm calling this sermon the Jesus Experience. It's kind of a a nod to to that band. Because just like listeners experience Jimi Hendrix's music differently and in different ways, people experience Jesus differently and in different ways. So let's turn to our passage, Matthew 13. It's on page 819 if you're using one of the Bibles um, under your chair. Now, most of Matthew chapter 13 is Matthew's accounts of a series of Jesus' parables. <clears throat> then there's some, some, teaching, some of Jesus' teaching on the parables mixed in there. But the first 52 verses of Matthew, there are seven parables. And then our passage is kind of, is kind of the conclusion of this section or this, this discourse on parables. So let's start in Matthew 13, verse 53. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so what, that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? So Jesus gets done with teaching and his parables. And so he, he moves on. He goes to Nazareth, his hometown. Now, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. We, we know that from the Christmas story. But one part of Jesus' childhood that, that's less talked about is the part where Herod makes a law requiring that all boys under the age of two be killed. So Herod hears this prophecy about a future king to be born in Bethlehem, and so he becomes paranoid and is afraid of losing his throne. And so he sets out to eliminate this threat by killing all the young boys in the region. And so Jesus' family, they hear about this in, in a dream, and so they, they flee to Egypt. And they remain there until after Herod dies, and then they return to, to Israel. And that, you know, that story doesn't get included in our Christmas carols and Christmas cards and stuff like that, but it is part of the, it is part of the story. When Jesus' family returns from Egypt, they settle in Nazareth. And that's where Jesus grows up, and that's where he lived when he was young. And so he's, he's known as being from Nazareth. That's why in the Gospels, he's called Jesus of Nazareth. So he started his public ministry. He's been traveling about, teaching, performing miracles, healing people, telling parables. And he comes back to his hometown. And he begins to teach there in the synagogue, and the people take notice. In fact, Matthew says they were astonished, asking where did he get this wisdom and these mighty works? Now, Matthew doesn't say here what what those teachings were, what the the works were, but clearly they were significant. They were wise teachings that amazed the people that heard it. And this isn't the only time that people, that the, the, the Bible says that people were amazed at Jesus' teachings. In Matthew 7, 28, we read, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Later in Matthew 22, we read, and when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching and no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. In Luke, uh, the apostle Luke states that even as a child, all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. In fact, there's more than a dozen verses and accounts of people being amazed by Jesus' teachings, his wisdom, his authority. Even Pontius Pilate is said to be amazed when talking to Jesus. The religious leaders that opposed him, they respected his teachings and were were astonished at them. And then the crowds recognized that Jesus had a different level of authority in, in his teachings than they were used to hearing from some of the other teachers. And so the first way that we can experience Jesus is through amazement and astonishment. Jesus may astonish you through his teachings. Jesus' teachings, they're they're incredibly wise. And so one way that we can experience Jesus is to learn from him, to learn what he taught us in the time of his ministry. 
And now, learning from Jesus is, is fairly commonly accepted. Even by atheists or people who don't believe in Jesus as their savior, most people agree that Jesus was a great teacher, that his teachings are wise, they're true, they're sound, they're valuable. You know, I'll listen to podcasts or I'll, I'll read books, even, and these are, these are secular podcasts and books, um, things like, you know, on topics of like leadership or self-improvement or, or marriage enrichment. And I'll hear things like, be wise or faithful in little things to show that you can handle bigger things. Don't go to bed angry at your spouse. Don't be anxious or worry about things. It'll, it'll sap your energy. Invest your money and put it to work. Don't hold on to anger at others. Take times of regular rest during the work week to maximize your effectiveness. And, and I'll hear these things and I'll be like, that's Jesus. That's, that's the Bible. Those are, those are the teachings of Jesus. And I wonder if the person sharing the wisdom or the statement knows it's from Jesus and just isn't kind of giving credit or if they don't know it's Jesus' wisdom, but because the teaching is so wise, they just, kind of, they just kind of go with it. But the point is, the teachings of Jesus are timeless. They're wise. They're astonishing. And they should be astonishing to us. They're full of applicable wisdom, but more importantly, they're full of spiritual wisdom. They're meant to challenge us. They're meant to change our lives. Have you experienced the teachings of Jesus in a way that astonishes you? So the first way that we experience Jesus is through learning from his teaching, reading, learning, applying the astonishing teachings he provided in his ministry. But, but here's the thing about Jesus' teachings. They may astonish you, but they'll only have impact on you if you apply them. They'll only change you if you make them a part of your life. Not until you learn them, humbly accept them, and live them out will your life look any different. So here in our passage, the people of Nazareth heard Jesus' teachings and were astonished by them, but, but they didn't really apply them. They, they, they don't really do anything with, with his teachings. Last month, I went to Palm Springs, California for a work conference, and I, I work in the mutual fund industry. And so this, this, this is an annual conference that we have. They gather about 700 to 800 uh, people from the industry for a few days of, um, of learning about industry trends and regulations, of net networking, of continuing education. But they also provide some times of, of entertainment. And so one of the sessions, they brought in a mentalist. A mentalist is, is a combination between a mind reader and a magician. And so they'll entertain by reading people. They'll, they'll read people's tendencies, their body language, their expression. And, and so they'll, they'll use these things to, to appear to read people's minds. And so this guy, his name was Oz Perlman. He'd been discovered on America's Got Talent. And so this guy went on America's Got Talent and he read the minds of Howard Stern and Howie Mandel and... Um, <clears throat> You know, anyone who can get inside the heads of those guys like, definitely has, has some skill. But this guy, he was very talented, charismatic, funny, smart, great, great entertainer. It was, it, was, uh, it was really entertaining. So for an hour, this mentalist entertained this crowd of mutual fund professionals. He was able to do things like tell exactly how much money or how much cash one guy had in his wallet and be able to say what the serial number of one of the randomly selected bills was. Um, he asked random people in the audience to think of celebrities and write them down and hide them. And he could look at the person and guess which celebrity they were thinking of. He asked one guy, or he was able to tell what one guy, what, what, what his like, uh, favorite, favorite music artist to listen to while driving in his car. All these things that he had no business knowing, this guy was able to read and was able to guess. And I'm usually somewhat skeptical of, of magicians and things like that. I'll, I'll sit there and I'll be like, All right, how's, how's this guy doing this? What, what's his trick? I couldn't figure this guy out. It was, um, 
And these examples aren't, aren't really doing it justice. Go, go on YouTube and look this guy up this afternoon. It's, it's, it's really pretty, pretty, uh, pretty cool, but I think you get my point. Um, but he astonished this crowd at this conference. The crowd is full of lawyers, of fund managers, of consultants. These are folks with, with Ivy League law degrees, MBAs, CFAs. Some of the brightest people in my, my mutual fund industry, they were astonished by this guy's act. And it was, it was a talk of the conference. How did he do that? How did he know those things? Some of the smartest people in the finance industry were astonished by this mentalist. And I was too. It was, it was really entertaining. I got home, I showed Anne and my daughters, and we, you know, we watched, watched it on YouTube. They were astonished as well. But... It also dawned on me for as astonishing as it was, for as entertaining as it was, it didn't really change or impact anything in, in my life or in, in the lives of others. It didn't teach me anything new. It, I didn't learn anything, anything different about the mutual fund industry. I didn't learn anything different about or new about myself. It was just kind of astonishing and engaging entertainment. <clears throat> I think that's what happened here with the people in Nazareth. I think that that's, that's what can happen with us as well. People of Nazareth were astonished by Jesus' teachings and his words. They were amazed by what he said and his wisdom. They were entertained by his mighty works, but it just sort of stopped there. The people didn't, didn't make the teachings a part of their life. They didn't apply them to their life or they didn't accept them. So why is that? What, what was the issue or the hangup for the people in Nazareth? I think verse 55 tells us, let's, let's keep reading our text. Matthew continues to describe how the people responded to Jesus. Verse 55, and are not all his, I'm sorry. um, Yeah, verse 55. Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. So here, the people moved from astonishment at Jesus' teaching to offense at him and his teaching. And that's, that's my second point today. The second way that we can experience Jesus is by being offended. Jesus may offend you because of who he is. Now, getting offended is fairly normal in today's society and culture. I think everyone's, everyone's really quick to become offended. I, I read a quote recently that said, if you're not angry, you're not paying attention. Um, folks seem to get offended at anything and at everything. And, and any little thing that they don't agree with becomes a national scandal or at least a social media scandal. Uh, you can make one wrong step or say one careless thing and you get canceled. That's just the way it kind of works now. The people of Nazareth seem to be no different. Verse 57 says, the people of Nazareth took offense at Jesus. So let's unpack why they were, off- why they were offended, um, looking again at verses 55 and 56. Here they begin asking questions about Jesus, about his family. Now, remember, this is Jesus' hometown. So these people have grown up uh, or have seen Jesus grown up alongside of them. They've lived alongside of Jesus and his family. They know his family. They know his background. And so they're saying, isn't his dad a carpenter? Didn't we buy our kitchen table from him? Isn't his mom Mary? What's, what's so special about her? We know his brothers and his sisters. They're nothing special. None of them made honor roll or, or got, got a college scholarship or anything like that. No one from his family is a rabbi or a teacher. Where did Jesus learn this stuff? So the people of Jesus' hometown couldn't see past Jesus' family and his background to see who he was or what he was saying. The phrase used in verse 57, they took offense, means cause of stumbling or something that trips up the traveler. In other words, the people of Nazareth experienced Jesus and stumbled over him. They they, they tripped over him. He became an obstacle to them and to their learning simply because of his family, because of who he was. 
The people of Nazareth, the people in Jesus' own hometown, those who knew him well, knew him best, they question him, they doubt him, they stumble over him and take offense at him. They can't move past the fact, they can't move past his background to actually see the things he's doing and actually hear the things he's saying. Now, one of the reasons Matthew includes this account is that to a Jewish reader, this wasn't just a story of people taking offense at Jesus because of his family. This story is also a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah. A Jewish reader of Matthew's gospel would know what the prophecy said about the Messiah. They would know that the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 6.21 said, Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will lay before this people stumbling blocks against which they shall stumble. And the prophet Isaiah in chapter 8, 14 and 15 says, And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble on it. So for the Jews, Jesus was a stumbling block because he is their promised Messiah, but he did not come as they expected him to. Chris, Chris preached about this last week on Easter. The Jews expected someone from a royal family Jesus was from a carpenter's family. They expected a king. Jesus was homeless. They expected a military leader and a warrior. Jesus preached peacemaking and servanthood. They expected someone that fit into their religious mindset. Jesus challenged that and opposed that with his teaching. They expected a king who sent people to die on the cross, not a king who himself would die on the cross. What about us? What about people living today in 2022 in the United States, in Littleton, Colorado? Does, does Jesus offend us? I'll argue that if he doesn't offend us, he should. If we understand what Jesus taught and said, some of it should, should offend us. Here's, here's a couple examples. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's what I had read over us this morning. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. I just looked at my, my, my parents and my wife when I, when I read that. That should be offensive to us. If you would be perfect, sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Whoever is not with me is against me and whoever does not gather with me scatters. We should hear things, we, or we often hear things like this and, and we think, who does this guy think he is? Where does he get off saying that stuff? If you're not with me, you're against me. Hate your family. I'm the way, no one gets to heaven except through me. Speaking absolutes is, is often offensive. And Jesus is no different. But when we study the gospels, they show that Jesus was teaching boldly and offensively wherever he went, whatever he said. And it's not because he was just trying to get attention. He's not, he's not some type of shock jock that's, that's on radio or TV. He wasn't being one of those preachers that, that people only listen to just to hear what controversial thing he's going to say. He wasn't trying to offer hot takes or hyperbole. Not, he wasn't trying to generate page views or clicks or, or raise ratings or anything like that. Jesus is a promised Messiah, the Son of God in human form, and that's how he preached and how he taught. He doesn't pull any punches. He doesn't soften anything so as not to offend anyone. He doesn't hold back. He preached what he preached because of who he was, God in human form. 
So Jesus didn't come to make us feel good. He wasn't some self-help guru that makes you feel better when you listen to him. He's not about self-motivation or stress management or time management or success or entrepreneurship or anything like that. There's plenty of those folks out there already. Just, just go on the social media or your podcast feed or, or look, look through the books on Amazon. There are many people out there who can, who can teach you things that encourage you or help you or motivate you, but very few of them are gonna teach you things that offend you. It's not a good business plan. It's not a good way to get followers or likes or subscribers. But, but Jesus isn't a businessman. He's not, he's not a social media influencer or a motivational speaker. He's not even a carpenter. He's not a teacher or a philosopher or a therapist. He's the son of God. He is the way to God, the truth about God, and the eternal life in God. And the things he said reflect that. But it wasn't just Jesus' teachings that were offensive. Who Jesus is and why he was sent are offensive to most people. Matt Chandler said it really well. He says it like this. People are offended by the message of Christ's atoning work on the cross. Christ's death on the cross is an indictment of how horrific we are at our core. And nothing is more frustrating to those outside of our faith than to come to the realization that they are broken and sinful by nature. Not just by their actions, but by their nature. And to think of a God who would kill his own son in order to save them, they can't fathom it. So in a world that's so highly concerned about inclusivity and equity, who Jesus is, is going to offend people. Because Jesus drew lines in the sand. He required, required people to make choices. Jesus taught in a way that required the listener to choose. The listener's heart could either be awakened by his teaching or hardened by it. He didn't really offer a middle ground when it came to him or when it came to our sin. Our sin is the very reason that Jesus came. He came to reveal sin in our lives. He came to save us from that sin by dying for that sin. So like, like Matt Chandler said, Jesus was sent to die for us because we're inherently evil sinners. It's in our nature to sin. And this is offensive to many people. Being told that we're broken and sinful is offensive to people. Being told that we need help, that we need salvation from our sin is offensive to people. That's why Jesus came. Jesus came to offend. You don't see that on many inspirational pictures at Christian bookstores. People don't share that on social media or, or <laughs> put it on t-shirts. Um, but it's true. Jesus came to offend. Have you been offended by Jesus? Have you experienced Jesus in a way that offends you? Let's wrap up this passage. Let's start in the second half of verse 57. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. So here we read Jesus' response to the people's response to him. Jesus said, a prophet is not welcome, or excuse me, is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And what's interesting to me is that here, Jesus doesn't try to defend himself or explain himself or list his qualifications or justify why he's different from his parents or his family. He doesn't, he doesn't do any of that. Throughout Jewish history, prophets, men of God, they were always treated with honor. They were, they were well-respected in the community. They, they, were, they received respect and honor. If a prophet was coming to your town, you'd likely stop what you're doing and take notice. 
It would be a big deal in that town. You would, you would plan your day and go hear what he had to say. You would go out of your way to show him honor and respect. But here Jesus just merely points out that he hasn't received any of that respect that a prophet would or should receive. And this is in his own, own hometown. You'd think they would roll out a red carpet for him or, or hold a banquet in his honor, you know, saying, look, lo- local boy is making good. You would think they would honor and celebrate him, but Jesus doesn't get that respect here. But he doesn't seem upset about it or even angry about it. His, his response is, Kind of matter of fact, because he knows that familiarity breeds contempt and he just seems to be okay with it. But I want to look more closely at verse 58 because this is the last verse in this passage. It's easy to kind of skim over and miss. Verse 58 says, and he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Jesus didn't perform mighty works or miracles because people didn't believe the way, the way it's worded in the original language isn't that Jesus chose not to do mighty works. It's not, it's not a consequence for their unbelief, but rather because of their unbelief, he was unable to do mighty works. In other words, their lack of faith limited Jesus' ministry. One commentator said that unbelief is the great obstruction to Christ's favors. So there's a direct connection between faith in Christ and Christ's power. There's, there's a relationship between faith in Christ and mighty works of Christ. Consider some of these verses. I'll put them up on the slides. Matthew 8, 13. And to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Matthew 9, 2. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Matthew 9, 22, Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. Matthew 9, 28, when he entered the house, the blind men came to him and Jesus said to them, do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes saying, according to your faith, be it done to you. In Mark 9, Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. In Romans 1, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And then in Ephesians 2.8, Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. So there's a connection between faith in Christ and the mighty works of Christ. The Bible makes it clear that belief is required for Christ to perform miracles and healing. Jesus wasn't just walking around like like some Jewish Oprah just handing out miracles. You get a miracle and you get a miracle. You get your eyesight back. You get healed. That wasn't how Jesus worked. The accounts of Matthew or the other gospels don't tell about Jesus just walking up to someone and, and randomly healing them out of the blue, but rather Jesus worked through encounters with people where he would observe their faith and then he would work his miracles. He would see their faith. He would see their belief. And then he worked miracles in their life. And then he would heal them from their sickness and from their disease. And the biggest sickness and disease that people possessed was their sin. And so salvation from our sin is the mightiest of Jesus' works. Walking on water, feeding the 5,000, raising Lazarus, all the miracles recorded in the Gospels are amazing. They testify to Jesus' power and deity. But his mightiest work, his greatest miracle, was to take his perfect and sinless life and offer it as a substitution, as a sacrifice for my sinful life, for your sinful life. 
Over and over, the gospels tell how people would experience Jesus. They may hear him teach and be astonished at his teachings, or they may hear him say he's the son of God and be offended by him, but he only worked in their lives when they believed in him. He only saves when people put their faith in him. I'll put it this way. Jesus may astonish you through his teachings. Jesus may offend you through who he is, but Jesus can only save you through faith in him. Our faith in Jesus is really what it all comes down to. Faith is the most important way that we can experience Jesus. Jesus' teachings may astonish you. You may may learn what he taught and really grow from it and really learn from those things. They may transform you into a better person, a better spouse, a better parent, better employee, better boss. But if all you look to Jesus for is wise wise and helpful teachings, you're missing him entirely. Or Jesus may offend you. You may hear Jesus' words about who he is and be offended by it. You may hear that you're a sinner and that you need a savior and find that offensive. You may think there are lots of ways to get to heaven and that Jesus is simply one of them. Or you may think that Jesus is just a guy who said some crazy things. You may get offended by Jesus and miss him entirely. Or we can realize that we're in fact sinners and that we can't account for our sin on our own. We can recognize that we do need a savior and recognize that Jesus will be our savior when we place our faith and our trust in him. Only then can he work miracles. Only then does he move. Only then will he save us. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So how about you? How have you experienced Jesus? How do you experience Jesus? My tendency is towards his teachings. Uh, my personality type is always, always drawn towards kind of the intellectual, the teachings, the wisdom, the application. I'm an Enneagram five, so I'm, I'm the investigator, the, the, the thinker. So I can easily geek out on some of the cultural context that Jesus uh, spoke into and taught into. I can study one of Jesus' parables and learn how the parable, um, how listeners at the time would, would hear and understand the parable. I, I can easily spend my time studying how or what Jesus said, how, how it fulfilled prophecy um, or the symbolism behind certain things that he said. I can easily get caught up in how Jesus challenged people, challenged the status quo and, and pushed the understanding of his audience. I can, I can get into all of that. But in doing so, I could miss Jesus entirely. I might be focused on his teachings or I may read or hear or study his words and the things he said and be astonished by it. But if I'm not careful, just like the people of Nazareth, that's where it may stop and end. If I'm not careful, I can see Jesus as just another motivational self-help teacher and nothing else, just another great speaker and teacher. All the while forgetting that he's the son of God. Anyone with me on this? Is anyone drawn primarily towards Jesus' teachings, simply astonished by him and his teachings? How do you experience Jesus? Maybe some of you this morning, Jesus offends you. You've been to church, maybe you've, you've, been, you've, you've heard lots of sermons, and maybe you've, you've read or even studied your Bible. You know the things Jesus said and, 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 that, and things he taught. And, and some of them are, are fine and maybe actually helpful to you in your life. You try to practice forgiveness to others. You try to give to those in need. You apply the golden rule and treat others the way you wish they would treat you. You try to avoid hypocrisy in your life. Try to love your neighbor. Maybe even try to love your enemies. 
So you embrace some of the teachings of Jesus because maybe they help your relationships or help you in the workplace or in your job or in your marriage or in your parenting. But then there's the other claims that Jesus made that, that maybe you, you brush aside. You know, when he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. When he calls himself the Son of God or the Son of Man. When he says, give all you have to the poor and follow me. Maybe you hear some of those things and you're like, all right, that's too much. He's going too far now. The relationship stuff, love my neighbor, forgive others. That's, that's helpful. That's good. But this is too far. Give up everything and follow you? You're coming for my money and my stuff? Do you know how hard I work for that stuff? You're the son of God. No one can get through heaven except through you. Do you know how restrictive that sounds? We're supposed to be inclusive, Jesus. Who do you think you are? So maybe you're offended by Jesus. Not all of, all of Jesus offends you. Not everything he said offends you, but maybe just the parts about who he is, who he claimed to be, and what it means if he is who he claimed to be. The son of God stuff, maybe, maybe that offends you. Because if Jesus is who he said he is, then he is God. And that changes the way you need to live your life. So maybe you're here today and you're offended by Jesus because what he said about who he is is too much, too strong, and too offensive. Do you experience Jesus in this way? Are you offended by Jesus and who he is? How do you experience Jesus? So as I was writing this sermon over the past few weeks, I've been, I've been thinking about this idea of experiencing Jesus. And it really hit me about a week ago on Good Friday. I was reading the crucifixion accounts and what Jesus went through on the cross. And, and my wife actually sent me, sent me some, uh, some reading on it. The gospel writers, they each give their account of how Jesus died on the cross and how, how people experienced his death. And one account in particular struck me. It's Luke's account of the two criminals who were crucified next to Jesus. There's one on Jesus' right and one on his left. And Luke tells us that the one on his right was offended at Jesus. The guy insults and mocks Jesus saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. So this guy who's about to die, he calls Jesus out. Jesus, you're supposed to be all powerful. Why don't you save yourself? And while you're at it, save me too. So this guy knows about Jesus, but doesn't believe in Jesus. In fact, he's offended that Jesus won't help him. But then the other criminal on Jesus' left, he has a different experience. The second criminal rebukes the first one. He acknowledges his own sin. He acknowledges Christ's purity. And then he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So listen to the trust and, and the faith in that statement. Remember me. The guy doesn't ask Jesus to rescue him from the cross. The guy doesn't ask Jesus to perform a miracle and bring him down off of the cross. But instead, he places his faith in Jesus to perform the ultimate mighty work, to remember him in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus immediately does this. Jesus replies, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. The second criminal's experience with Jesus was faith. He put his faith in Christ. And immediately in that instant, Jesus performed his mightiest of works. He saved the man. He opened the gates of heaven to the man at that very moment. I was, I was just struck by these two criminals. They're, they're both very similar. Both of these guys were likely thieves. They were being punished for taking from others, from taking what wasn't theirs. And they were both being put to death on the cross for, as punishment for their crimes. Both are going through the same brutal experience of crucifixion. Both are being hung on a cross. Both are the same distance away from Jesus. Both are seeing what Jesus is going through that day. 
Yet each has a different Jesus experience. One was offended by Jesus. The other put his faith in Jesus. Two similar men, two different experiences. How do you experience Jesus? As I mentioned earlier, this summer we're resuming our preaching series on Matthew's gospel. And so this summer we're going to be preaching through Matthew's account of Jesus, Matthew's account of how he and others experienced Jesus. And some of the sermons are going to focus on things that Jesus said, like his teachings. Some are going to focus on things Jesus did, his miracles. We're going to cover things like the feeding of the 5,000, walking on water, the transfiguration, Jesus' teachings about the size of a mustard seed, faith the size of a mustard seed, Jesus telling us to take up our cross and follow him. Jesus establishing his church. And so some of these accounts hopefully will, will astound you and astonish you, instruct you and teach you. And our hope is that you'll learn from them, that you'll learn more about Jesus from them. Some of these accounts may offend you. Our hope is that you might be challenged by some of the things that Jesus said, that some of the things may make you uncomfortable and drive you towards positive change. Or maybe some things will cause you to wrestle in your faith and, and that's okay too. But ultimately, we don't want you to simply be astonished or offended as we preach about Jesus. That's, that's not the goal. That's not why we're preaching this series. The goal is for you to experience Jesus in a new way. For those who have already placed their faith and trust in Jesus, our prayer is that your faith would be deepened, strengthened, that it would be unshakable. No matter what storms or hardship life presents, that your faith in Jesus would remain strong. And for those who have, who have never believed in Jesus, our prayer is that you would believe that you would put your faith in him and believe in him so that he can perform his mightiest of works in your life by saving you from your sin. So church, there are many ways that we can experience Jesus. We can, we can be astonished at him. We can be offended by him. Or we can put our faith in him. Only one of those ways will bring about the mighty work of salvation. Only putting faith in Jesus will save us. How will you experience Jesus? Please pray with me. Dear Father, I thank you today. I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the time to gather and, and talk about you and learn about you and worship you. I thank you that we can enter into this book of, of Matthew and, and read Matthew's account and experience of walking alongside your son, Jesus. And, and God, so I just want to lift up people's experiences with Jesus, whether it's today, whether it's been throughout the course of their life, Lord. Um, some of us may have, may have may read our Bibles and, and listen to sermons, and we may have experienced Jesus in a way that astonishes us through his teachings. But we can learn, we can learn so much from, from Jesus and, and, and from his teachings. But God, I just pray that, that being astonished at his teachings is not where it would end for us. That it would be maybe a starting point. That astonishment is his teachings would be a stepping stone to faith and to putting greater faith and trust in him. And God, sometimes we may be, may be offended by Jesus and his teachings. And our, and our experience may be one of, of, of stumbling or offense. So God, for, for folks that are there, um, I pray that, that you would use that and that, that it may be just a stepping stone and not a, uh, a stone that we stumble over. That even though we may be challenged or offended by some of these things, that it may deeper deeper our belief and deeper our faith, deepen our faith. God, I pray that our, our experience would be one of faith in you, that we would, we would ultimately believe in you, believe more deeply in you. Uh, for, for those who may be here this morning and have, have never, never done that, God, I pray, pray that this morning they would place their faith in you, 
knowing that in that instance, immediately you'll, you'll perform your mighty work of salvation. So God, I pray that you would, you would move in, in the minds and the hearts of, of folks this morning, that we, we would go deeper, deeper with you, that we would place deeper faith in you. And so Lord, as we, as we respond, I pray that you would continue to work in this, in this room, that your spirit would move throughout this room and, and guide our hearts and minds uh, closer to you. I thank you for this time this morning. We thank you for your word. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.